And if you go back into those asylums themselves, what we thought, or we think in retrospect is deplorable, they actually thought was therapeutic. You know, when the King of England, George III was treated for his madness, which turned out to be from a, a, a condition other than mental illness. But when he was treated for his quote unquote madness, he was whipped, he was beaten. He had acid poured on his skin. And this is the King of England. So it wasn't like they thought they were doing harm to him. They actually thought they were helping him. Welcome to Pure Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Ride along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Mankin, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route. All right, welcome back. Today we are delighted to have Roy Richard Grinker with us. He's a professor of anthropology and international affairs at George Washington University and author of the new book, Nobody's Normal, How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness. Richard comes from a long line of research psychologists himself. His grandfather, Roy Richard Grinker Sr., was a pioneer in American psychology and actually studied under Sigmund Freud. In fact, he may have been one of the last people psychoanalyzed by Freud before his death. We'll talk more about that and Richard's unique lens on psychology and mental illness through history, anthropology, and culture. And can science really answer the question, is there really such a thing as a normal human mind? Is there really such a thing as an abnormal mind? Well, let's find out. And with that said, let's get started. Richard, welcome to the show. Um, hey, thanks for having me. This is a this is a great book, actually. I have to say, we talked a little bit about this before we started re recording. An area I, I know very little about, so it makes it even better. But of all the places, I thought, why not start Martha's Vineyard today? Everybody wants to get on vacation this summer if we can get these vaccines out. And um, if you'd asked me before I read the book, is there an interesting history in Martha's Vineyard? I've actually never been there. I would have said, I don't think so. But it turns out there is. Uh, from the very early European settlers through the next two centuries, it was an interesting population there. Tell us a little bit about this, because I think this kind of takes us on the path of bigger things we're going to talk about. Well, a lot of the book that we're talking about today, Nobody's Normal, is, is about the power of culture to be able to shape what we value and what we don't value. And one of the fascinating things about Martha's Vineyard was that it was really isolated from the mainland. You know, it's not very far from Boston, but it was very isolated and people intermarried. And by the uh, 19th century, there had been so much intermarriage that a particular kind of hereditary disease developed in which people up to 25% of the entire population had some degree of hereditary deafness. While on the mainland, people thought that sign language was terrible, a sign of being savage and primitive, and they, they completely rejected it in schools. In Martha's Vineyard, they created their own sign language. And because everybody on the island spoke sign language, you often didn't know who was deaf and who wasn't deaf because everybody was able to communicate. And in a sense, nobody was deaf because it wasn't a disability. Everybody could communicate. And so it was a biological um, condition that was caused by culture, interbreeding. But then it was culture that was able to overtake that biological problem and find a way 
around it. And I use this as an example to show us just how much power we have as a culture to be able to address the things that can stigmatize. It's sort of like saying, you know, somebody in a wheelchair isn't by nature disabled. That person is disabled only when the environment has no elevators or ramps or ways for that person to function. And in Martha's Vineyard, just we see in a microcosm this remarkable creativity of culture. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's, as you said, it's not remote. It's not like some island out in the South Pacific. I mean, I was kind of wondering, is there a reason people didn't go into Providence or Boston to go on a date? I mean, what, why, why was there, there such isolation there? Well, it wasn't easy to go 80 miles um, on a boat in, in, at those times in the 18th century and in the 19th century. But it was um, more that it was a, just, it was a highly insular community that was very fearful of being infiltrated by the mainland. They were very, very protective. Yeah, Keith and I were talking about this a little bit before. There's still kind of a little bit of that culture there today, isn't there? Like, um, people, will, you know, they love Martha's Vineyard. They don't want to go anywhere else, right? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There are islands um, off the mid-Atlantic coast of the United States that have their own dialects of English, which are really, really interesting. And they've remained, you know, pretty, pretty insular. Sure. Um, and, you know, these, when, when we talk about anthropology, you know, we talk about going and digging in archaeology, and we talk about going and living with far-off populations in rainforests and, and so on. And um, history's a foreign country too, you know? And so anthropologists often go back and look at these unusual instances uh, historically to say, look, these people did this, therefore we have the power to change things too. I think it's a very empowering kind of thing. And this is what anthropology does, it denaturalizes. It says that what we do is something that we have power over. You know, culture uh, is not all powerful, Nature holds us on a leash, but it's a really, really long leash. Uh, early in the book, you um, you make the you have the discussion about how the Industrial Revolution capitalism really started to define uh, things as abnormal versus normal. And uh, when we refer to the Martha's Vineyard um, uh, experience, uh, do you think that that separation, although it created a great environment for Martha's Vineyard, if they had been able to get more uh, get over to a Boston before the Industrial Revolution or at Providence especially, which was such an open society. Do you think it would have taken um, more uh, hold that we'd see more of it on the mainland, that kind of acceptance? Or was this something they were fighting or they didn't even want to try to fight? Well, as, as far as sign language is concerned, as far as deafness is concerned, um, you know, the earliest settlers, the Puritans, were really dead set on the idea that one had to make a strict separation between animals and humans. And they saw children as being animal-like mm -hmm. and by you know, walking on all fours or um, not being able to, to speak because they were you know, they're, they're infants. And they did things like they, they tied children's um, uh, arms with pieces of wood so they wouldn't suck their thumb or they put a, a, a rod on the back so that the child wouldn't crawl because they didn't want anything animal-like. And sign language was seen to be bestial. So had the 
people from Martha's Vineyard gone to the mainland at that time, sign language just would not have been at all possible. Now, the important thing to say, since you brought up capitalism, is that capitalism didn't create mental illnesses. It didn't create uh, new diseases. But what capitalism did was it provided the conditions under which doctors and scientists could start to divide up the world into different kinds of disease categories and stereotypes and say, these people have mental illnesses, these people are criminals, these people are beggars and, and, and so on and so forth. So it's important to say that capitalism can create the thing, but it created the conditions under which a certain form of knowledge developed. Well, it cre created a, an atmosphere where worth was, where an individual's value was now being assessed. Exactly. Yeah. So. I mean, capitalism doesn't exist outside of capitalist societies. So, you know, uh, if you value the person who produces the most, who's independent, autonomous, then you devalue the person who's the opposite. And so having a disability in capitalism became something that was shameful and something that was undesirable to the degree that the first asylums in Europe were occupied by people who weren't brought there by police or the state. They were brought there by families because they were useless in the household and then they, and then they brought them there or they dishonored the household. So speaking of that, I mean, if, if we look back, let's just pick, there's a lot of times and places we could go, but just the Middle Ages, for example, in, in Europe, someone with severe mental disabilities, and we have to be careful of these terms as I'm learning reading your book, this, this vocabulary is a big part of our discussion today. But if we think of someone who we would consider today having schizophrenia, how were, what do we know of how they were treated by their families, by their communities? What was life like for these people? We don't know very much about that. And it's hard to say that people were treated better in their families than they were later on when asylums were developed. I would imagine that in many cases, people were treated terribly. But before the division of diseases into diseases of the body and diseases of the mind, somebody who had delusions or heard voices was much more likely to be seen as perhaps in touch with God or in touch with spirits. And if they weren't hurting anybody and they weren't harming anybody, they could even be seen as closer to God and, and divine. And we see that in the world today. If you go to many parts of the world that say India, people who we might look at and say, oh, they're hallucinating or they're having a delusion can find places in religious systems uh, in which they can uh, find a role in the community and to function. And in fact, as we look across the globe, we find that in the least industrialized societies, people with um, psychotic disorders actually do better than they do in cities in Europe and the United States. Do better, what do I mean? They may marry, have children. They have fewer psychotic episodes. Those they do have are less severe. And so there is a you know, an analogy there to the past. And, and I, would, I would guess, you know, in the Middle Ages that things were, were sometimes better for people. 
you know, we, we also have evidence um, from ancient texts that while people with what appears to us in retrospect, you know, in hindsight to look like schizophrenia were sometimes disciplined with whipping or beatings. Also, we see very positive things, how people were treated with love and kindness and given hope for the future. Yeah, we're gonna see that back and forth uh, continues way into the future. Maybe oh, it's a roller coaster, it's a roller coaster. And sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. I mean, it's the history of the stigma of mental illness is not one that is gradual and linear. It just goes up and down. And that's part of what I talk about in the book. Yeah, I mean, something that's a step forward and maybe a step backwards, and I'm not even sure how I feel about it. You know, the idea of psychiatric hospitals, mental institutions. Let's talk a little bit about how and where these originated and why. This has to do with what you were talking about earlier with capitalism and labor. But um, there, there's pluses and minuses here, right? And it wasn't all evenly distributed. Help us understand a little bit more about where these came from. Well, the first asylums were actually also prisons. A lot of people think they were prisons and then later on they developed asylums. It's actually the other way around. There were asylums for people who didn't fit in to society. We're talking the 1600s say, in France, in England. And once capitalism develops and people become housed in these asylums who are either criminals or are disabled or not productive or are uh, uh, beggars or, or bankrupt, there are enough people that develop there that finally for the first time, scientists have a large enough group of people to look at as a group and to say, oh, you know, these people who used to be scattered all over, you know, who knows where, now we've got them all here. And at one point, apparently, 1% of the population of Paris was confined by the end of the 1700s. And, um, and once you had this group of people, doctors could then sort, sort them out. And there were humanitarians who went and say, these are deplorable institutions. These are horrible. People are living among rats and feces and it's, it's horrendous. And they said, let's separate them out. And they said, well, let's take the criminals and put them in prisons and we'll take the people who are insane and we'll put them in insane asylums. And it is so, it is only when we get the development of an idea of a distinctly mental illness that prisons are even developed in Western Europe. It's a really, really interesting story. It is, and you say doctors, but not all of these were medical professionals, right? They're in a more administrative role. And then that- Well, yeah, evolved, you know, doctors, right? uh, clinicians, the definitions of what constituted a doctor back in the 1700s. Well, yeah. a little, a little I guess more specific you know? than my question would be psychiatry and how that originated, right? I mean, help us understand a little more about that path. Well, the even into the mid 20th century, psychiatrists were kind of seen as administrators. You know, they, they ran institutions and were kind of second rate doctors in, in Europe, in Germany and Austria, for example, even as late as um, the as 1900, uh, psychiatry was the you know either the first or second most disreputable profession. And given the anti-Semitism, it was Jews who were psychiatrists. 
because nobody else wanted to do it and Jews were prohibited from entering into other medical specialties. So the first psychiatrists were really um, um, very much, you know, engaged in, in managing these, these hospitals. And it's only really in the 1960s, once John F. Kennedy passes the Community Mental Health Act that we start to see this movement of people out of the hospitals. And as deplorable as the hospitals were, now people look at the result of deinstitutionalization and say, gee, homelessness is a horrible problem in the world. And that's partly due to deinstitutionalization because you can't just get people out of these asylums and institutions if there's no funding in the community to take care of them. So again, it's one of these situations where we're always ambivalent about what we're talking about. And then if you go back into those asylums themselves, what we thought or we think in retrospect is deplorable, they actually thought was therapeutic. You know, when the King of England, George III, George III was treated for his madness, which turned out to be from a, a, a condition other than mental illness. But when he was treated for his quote unquote madness, he was whipped, he was beaten. He had acid poured on his skin. And this is the King of England. So it wasn't like they thought they were doing harm to him. They actually thought they were helping him. It's amazing. <laughs> what, 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 what do we think he had now? Oh, it was perfuria. Okay. And what, was it generally known, these treatments? Was it, was it talked about or oh, yeah. just in the court? Or it was, it was talked about that you needed to basically, um, you know, discipline the, the mind and the body, which was out of control. Amazing. You know, as if, as if you were, you know, a puppet tear controlling, controlling the person. Um, mental illness was seen to be a sign of the bestial a sign of the, the animal and you needed to be tamed and to may, be made more human. Um, I mean, there are lots of lots of other theories that went around as well. There were some people who thought that mental illness was untreatable because it was really just a, a degeneration of humanity from the pure Adam and Eve. Others thought, well, yes, everybody's degenerating, but maybe people with mental illnesses are degenerating faster than others. There are all kinds of ideas that developed. And by the early 19th century, you really have in place the idea that within the, the human being, there are two minds, a good one and a bad one, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that kind of thing. Well, this leads really into one of the central themes here of your book, and that's the idea of stigma. So, you know, I asked a question about George III because even you talked about um, uh uh, McGovern and, and Nixon, what in the in the mid seventies, um, his first McGovern's first vice presidential pick had admitted, maybe reluctantly, that he had sought uh, specialized mental health treatment. Yeah, Eagleton. Eagleton, exactly. Right. And this is a big deal then. And frankly, I, I think you highlight this. I mean, I'm not sure a presidential candidate today could fully admit this. Uh, so we haven't really come that far. You know. Tell us what what is stigma? I mean, really, what what is we understand it at a top level view, but where does it come from, and why do we pick certain things to be stigmas and others not? And it, yeah, the the reason I wrote Nobody's Normal was because I felt that stigma was actually too often used without us understanding its history and its various meanings. 
you know, it comes from the ancient, it's an old, old word. It comes from the ancient Greek, which means a branding or marking on the skin uh, might've been uh, the being a slave and you had a branding on you, a mark or uh, having being a criminal in ancient Greece. And then it became associated in Christianity with Christ's crucifixion wounds, which are also of course a mark on the body. The idea of stigma is that it is not just uh, something that marks you as a discredited or shameful kind of being, but rather that it is a lasting and permanent mark. And so every society can find a way to stigmatize somebody. We may stigmatize somebody. You know, when I was growing up, uh, people whispered about people who were bachelors and who never married because that was stigmatizing because it meant maybe they were gay or even people who had divorced. If they had divorced, that was seen as shameful uh, when I was growing up. Every society can find a way to do that. The question is, um, how can we mute it? How can we address it? And a lot of people think that the stigma of whatever it is, whether it's a physical, mental disease, whether it's um, some kind of dishonor, uh, can be addressed by education and awareness. And we have slogans and awareness campaigns. You can go onto websites and you hear, see commercials on television that tell you about you know, eradicating stigma, but nothing has really worked. The argument that I make in this book is that the only way to really reduce the stigma, the shame and the secrecy and the discrimination of difference is to change our ideals of what a meaningful life is and what a good human being is. That's, we have to go to this sort of fundamental, um, very you know, deeply rooted aspect of our history to see how we've come to idealize certain people and devalue others. And the reason why we see stigma ebb and flow is because at different historical periods, we value or devalue different kinds of people. In World War I and World War II, we actually started to value people who had post-traumatic stress disorder or what we today call post-traumatic stress disorder, had other words in the past. And then after the wars, we start to devalue that. We see them as strong in the war and resilient and we care for them. And then after the war, they become a financial burden. And so you can see in a matter of just a decade or two sometimes, a dramatic change in what kind of suffering and what kind of human differences uh, are denigrated. Yeah, um, go ahead, Keith. Yeah, I was going to um, just mention in, in this day and age, or actually for the last, I don't know, 50, 75 years, uh, it, it, no stigma is universal, even in a, a single society. I mean, there are, there are, um, there are going to be people who look at, at people who have a disorder or have something different, a disability, and say, oh, these people are really trying hard, and I, we can uh, find ways for society to, to work with them. But you're going to have people who say, no, these people are bad, wrong, abnormal. Why is it that society clings to those people? Are they just really loud and strident? You use the, um, the uh, example of uh, ECT therapy, for instance, where all the 
all the literature now points to how safe and effective it is. But I live in Texas, a state where it's illegal to give it to children who could use it most for no reason except that it has a stigma. Is it just the people in power? Is it the noise? Is it that humans want to believe bad things? What's your feeling about that? I think ECT is a really interesting example because it's, it's not something, you know, sometimes the stigma comes from the professionals themselves. In this case, the stigma comes from something else. And it is the um, action on the brain. The idea that somehow our, you know, we are defined by our brains and the essence of our, our being is in our, is in our brains. And that's ha something that has really developed quite intensively over the past few years as medicine has sought to frame uh, emotional suffering solely in terms of the brain. And so we focus on the brain and neural circuitry and cortical thickness and things of that sort, rather than uh, things like poverty, discrimination, adverse childhood circumstances, and so on. Um, you know, it's really interesting, the hero of so many emergency room television dramas or hospital dramas is the electricity that gets put to the heart when somebody's having a cardiac event, right? And they give them this jolt of electricity and they save their life and it's the hero. Uh, clear, and then they put the, <laughs> the, the paddles on. Um, but yet when we have a treatment that is, <sighs> saves lives and ECT saves lives for people with treatment resistant depression where nothing else has worked, um, we, we see it as somehow torture. Um, and then, I mean, it's, I would say that the chapter in my book on ECT is probably, you know, the one that's the most contentious because there are so many reactions to it and the negative reaction, how can Grinker say that ECT is, uh, you know, is effective when it's torture and it's done involuntarily, uh, in some cases, that's certainly, uh, not that common, um, and uh, there are horrible side effects. Well, you know, when somebody has heart surgery to save their life, there are a lot of side effects to heart surgery. Huge. There are a lot of side effects to making an incision uh, in the sternum and yeah. putting you on a heart lung machine and so on. Um, we don't say that that is cruel or torture. And I talk in the book about people like musicians and celebrities like Dick Cavett and others who, and William Styron, you know, people who had electroconvulsive therapy and it saved their lives. But we have this idea that the brain is the seat of the soul and the seat of the person. I mean, I understand it's the, electroconvulsive therapy looks like a blunt instrument, right? I mean, yeah. it's, yeah. it is a kind of a blunt instrument. But it's so are antibiotics for wide spectrum. I mean, there's lots well, of ones. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's that's true, Colin. But antibiotics are like potion, magic potions. We yeah. just put them in our bodies, and you know. And a curious, curious point that the um, that uh, cardiac uh, therapy um, clear that's usually involuntary as well. So, um, and uh, you true. make you make the point also in that chapter about the image of um, in popular movies, for instance, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest of the, elect, the uh, ECT and, and the sort of torturous aspect of it. 
And it's funny what that put in mind was was the movie King of Hearts, which I love. I don't know if you've seen it. I but do. It's um, it shows the the people in the who are the abnormal, quote unquote, as a gentle society. And that's sort of how I imagine, um, you know, you release the inmates from the asylum and it's a much better community. So it's amazing how public how popular media affects how people look at things. Yeah, there are, the King of Hearts is great, and there are a couple other films too um, that that were made in the twentieth century, in which you know the real insane ones are not the ones who are the inmates, right? The real insane ones are the ones who who imprison them, and um, I think that um, that provides a really interesting critical perspective on it, you know. Um, that movie also, The King of Hearts, is set in World War One, I, I believe, right? right. Yeah. Is that right? So there is the insanity of war that is, you know, plays out as the, the kind of backdrop, the foil against which, which we see um, people who are not, you know, so irrationally bound on destroying some enemy. Yeah, I think you may find your chapter on ECT to be one of the more valuable for people reading it. Um, well, I try to explain in simple terms what it is. Well, I think you, you treat it very fairly, but we did, um, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago, we did an episode on using psychedelics for um, mental health treatment. So we had um, guy, David Nichols, who's a neuropharmacologist, and so he's a chemist, and he's the one who built the chemical analogs for psilocybin and some of these other psychedelics that are being used at Johns Hopkins and other research. Sure. Yeah, that's the place where they're kind of focused. Yeah, and um, it, out of all the podcasts we've done, I mean, we've, you know, NASA astronauts and the Navy SEALs and Chernobyl, all the popular ones, that's the number one podcast uh, by listenership, sure. but by far. I mean, there's a huge interest in this. And well, I was influenced by an experience I had when I was in high school. Um, I, I, you have, we haven't talked about this, but I come from this long line of psychiatrists. My great-grandfather, my grandfather, who was analyzed by Freud. My father was a psychiatrist. My wife is a psychiatrist. And hold that thought, because I want to explore that a little bit more, too. We don't want to, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah sure. I was just going to say, you know, around ECT, I was in high school. I was about 15 years old, 16 years old. My grandfather got me a summer job filing and cleaning at a psychiatric hospital. Because um, when... Your grandfather is a famous psychiatrist in Chicago and you ask him to find you something to do during the summer, what's he gonna find, right? Plus <laughs> he wanted me to become a psychiatrist. And I just, you know, at 15 or 16, I saw a woman who was near death. She was just wasting away. She was catatonic. She couldn't even blink. And after she had several rounds of ECT, she was eating popcorn and she was watching TV and she was talking. And it was an incredibly powerful experience for me at that age to see how this particular procedure which I you know imagined was going to be horrible because I'd seen yeah. one flew over the cuckoo's nest by that time and I was I thought it was going to be this very theatrical you know horrible thing and it was a really calm uneventful rather boring therapeutic session when I saw the ECT being delivered but it saved her life. That same summer, by the way, I bumped into a classmate of mine. That's right. I remember you talking about in this. the hospital, and 
she, you know, I never like, I never found out her diagnosis, but she was so emaciated. I, I, I assumed that she had anorexia nervosa. And when she saw me, she became so upset and she told other people, you know, I saw this kid who's in my class and it create just all hell broke loose. Principal, teachers, my parents, her parents, the doctors, everybody got involved to make sure that I would never tell anybody what I saw. And so that was an important summer for me, both because I learned about ECT, but also because I, for the first time, really, really understood the stigma of mental illness. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I mean, it's not like you saw her at the orthopedist or something. I mean, it's totally different. All right. Yeah, which, which also tells you why, you know, in waiting rooms, usually, like well, Freud's waiting room, he always had two doors. Yeah. One door that you'd go That's into, and then one door that you'd leave his office from so nobody would ever see who was in the office because it was shameful to be seeing a psychiatrist. Yeah. All right. So we're circling around this. We got we to talk about this because you're, sure. you're a little bit of a rebel going into anthropology, right? I mean, clearly, yes. you know, you, even at an early age, you were kind of being nudged in one direction. Although you've oh, got they were not happy. around to, to, to still having interest in psychology. Tell us a little, we would talk about Freud and then tell us a little bit about your family history. Yeah. Um, my great grandfather uh, practiced uh, neurology, psychiatry, and psychoanalysis in Chicago at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s. Um, I've read things that he's written and things about him. I think that he was probably considered to be a sexist and a racist, uh, even by the standards of those days. Um, he, you know, was somebody who was kind of a eugenicist and believed that people with mental illnesses shouldn't reproduce. Um, and my grandfather completely rejected those views. And he thought that whereas my great grandfather believed people with mental illnesses should all be locked away in asylums, my grandfather thought that this new idea of psychoanalysis that was developing in, in Austria held promise for moving the treatment of emotional suffering outside of the asylum to the more common disorders, the people who were depressed or anxious or, or whatever but didn't need to be in asylums. That was the goal, to try and move mental health professions out of the people who needed 24 seven care and were locked in institutions to help, you know, not the worried well so much, but, but people who suffered, but were still functioning in their world. And, um, and so he became very much uh, a leader in, and a pioneer in doing uh, developing psychiatric uh, treatments and also convincing the American public that it wasn't shameful to have a mental illness, that everybody gets a mental illness from time to time or some degree of it, right? Like I don't have necessarily an anxiety disorder, but I have a lot of anxiety and it's important that I have anxiety. If I didn't have anxiety, I would walk out in the street. I wouldn't look both ways and I'd probably get hit by a car. Yeah. We have to have anxiety in order to function properly. In but the I world. want my, my three-year-old to have right now. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. But at some point, my anxiety could go over the line into something which is impairing. And I should be able to get treatment for that if I have it. And, um, and that's really what he was trying to do. Um, and then my father became mostly a clinician, not a researcher. And they were just so disappointed when I decided 
that I didn't want to be a psychiatrist because they had this idea of like a dynasty, you know, of some, you know, four generations of shrinks. And um, I, I, and I can't tell you exactly why I didn't do it other than that I admired them all so much. My father and my grandfather, I never met my great grandfather. Um, I didn't want to compete with them. I did thought I would never measure up. Well, maybe so if your great-grandfather had done a psychoanalysis with you, um, if you'd had that opportunity, he could have. Yeah, maybe if that had happened, but it didn't. But, uh, but, but he did do this with Freud, right? I mean, it was when Freud was teaching the concepts and... He went to Vienna. So, I mean, he wanted to... Yeah, yeah. I mean, he wanted to, to, to learn about Freud, but his father wouldn't let him. His father said, you know, if you go to, to study with Freud... And that, you know, quack psychoanalysis, I'm going to cut you off. I'm going to disown you. And so he went to work in his father's practice doing neurology and psychiatry, but not psychoanalysis. And, um, and then very, very quickly, my great-grandfather died of pancreatic cancer. Within a matter of months, my grandfather was on a boat to Europe to go and be analyzed by Freud. And he was, he was just itching to do that. And, um, and it was great for him because not only did he learn about psychoanalysis, but, he, but, but Freud was a kind of uh, father figure in a way. And so he could work through his ambivalence about his own father in his conversations with Freud. Yeah, so I just spoke earlier, uh, not your great-grandfather, but your grandfather. Um, I was trying to think of an, an analogy to this. And it's kind of tough. I mean, if I was a resident training under Keith, for example, and I don't know, we broke one of my, my femurs and set it. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not even the same thing. I mean, they really explored some deep stuff together, which is strange to imagine doing that with a colleague or a mentor, but that was part of the process. Um, tell us oh, even today, yeah. even today, when you're interviewed, for a psychiatric residency, you're a medical student and you're coming in, you're, you wanna go into psychiatry. The questions that they'll ask you in a, an interview for a psychiatric residency application are very different from the ones they will ask you for orthopedics. I didn't know they that. will ask you questions about your relationships with siblings and your empathy. And they'll, I mean, they, they ask you a very probing questions in many of these residency applications because the idea is that you can't really be a good therapist unless you can also get in touch with some of your own biases and your own issues. And this is something that's true in my field too. Margaret Mead always said that you should be psychoanalyzed before you go and do field work. Because before you go off to some remote society, you wanna be psychoanalyzed so that you're aware of all of your subjective, subjective uh, uh, tendencies and your biases and so on and um and it was it became kind of a kind of a standard thing for a lot of academics to do and the difficulty for my grandfather was that he saw it as purely ped uh, pedagogical that this was he was learning about psychoanalysis by being analyzed and today you in any psychoanalytic institute in the united states or europe you learn about psychoanalysis by being analyzed that's how you do it uh, but he saw it as just that, and it turned out to actually be something that was really therapeutic for him. Yeah. He comes yeah. back to the United States after spending time in Vienna, you know, being analyzed, and um, he's a new person. 
he's a different person. He's no longer Julius's boy. He's got a new identity as one of Freud's last patients. And he really leverages that to become a leader in psychiatry. He eventually started the psychiatry department at the University of Chicago, and he was the founding editor of the Archives of General Psychiatry for the, the leading journal in the world in psychiatry, um, in many people's opinion. So I want to say, um, even without the personal history, this is an amazing book, but the personal history makes it really special. Um, I think you're to be congratulated for, well, for having such a, an interesting family, but also to, for incorporating in such really vivid storytelling. Um, I had a question. Uh, you, you talked about how going into the 20th century, psychiatrists were sort of the lowest of the lows. And for us who are not in psychiatry, um, we may still look down our nose a little bit at, at psychiatrists. Not, I don't, but I know several of my colleagues. Sure. Um, do you think the Freud's fame um, was enough that when your grandfather came back to practice on his own and when your father opened practice that psychiatry had a different level of acceptance, a, a different place in society? By the, yes, by the time, um... He's really um, in his, the height of his career. So we're talking in the 1950s and he's 50 years old. By that time, psychiatry was one of the most popular residency choices of, for, for, for um, graduating medical students. I think I looked at one year in the 1950s and it was maybe 15 to 20% of people applied to psychiatric residencies from Harvard Medical School's graduating awesome. class. I mean, it was so popular. It was really, really popular. Um, by the 1990s, the early 2000s, you were down to four or five percent of medical students. So, psychoanalysis really helped the growth of psychiatry in a huge way that I think is often really under recognized. Quick diversion here. It's the thinking. When Freud passed away, were any of his patient notes left behind? Did you find any of that? Was there anything available just to learn no, what you thought of your grandfather? Found, I never found anything, and I'm not aware that he took notes. Ah, interesting. Uh, with many of his patients. You know, my grandfather always complained that Freud didn't really care about much uh, in his life, in my, his own life. He said, I don't, I, he was, you know, he listened to my dreams and uh, my, my grandfather had it, most of his sessions were in the afternoon. And so after lunch, he'd, or during lunch, he'd have a beer, which would make him sleepy. So he could go to sleep and have a dream. So that the, then when he woke up and went to the session, he'd have a dream to record. But he never felt like Freud actually really cared about his own <laughs> life, you know? He said, Interesting. Yeah, he once said to me, I don't think he had a therapeutic bone in his body. Well, <laughs> Freud's response to that was, I wouldn't be doing this if I cared about my patients. I'm doing this to learn about the structure of the human mind. And you people are vehicles for helping me to understand the structure of the human mind. So that, that was the, the sort of difference. So if you expected a warm and fuzzy uh, doctor who was uh, really interested in the particulars of your life, you weren't gonna find that in Freud. This, this is something I read uh, actually last night. Um, this is famous child uh, psychology researcher, and this is Eric Erickson. Tell us who he was, and he admitted to having three children, but he actually had four. Tell us about this. Yeah, Eric Erickson was really, you know, the father of child psychology. 
um, and a Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, he was a professor at Harvard, huge figure, and he had a child uh, uh, with his wife, Joan, um, and uh, named Neil. And Neil was born with Down syndrome. Um, and rather than take care of the child and raise Neil, they sent Neil to an institution in California where Neil spent the rest of his life. But when he came home, he told his children and friends and family that the baby had been stillborn. And so they didn't know until Neil died that they actually had a brother with Down syndrome. The term wasn't Down syndrome that they used, by the way, it was mongoloid idiot back then. This is 19, gosh, I can't, I don't have the date on the top of my head, but it was, it was after World War II. 1944 right? when, yeah. Yeah. When um, died. And interestingly, I was just looking at a chart from Johns Hopkins University from the files of the Dr. Leo Connor, where he's uh, making notes about a child with autism. And uh, the child doesn't sound, you know, completely impaired or anything, but he says to the parents, you should send your child to an institution um, because it will hurt the honor and respect and functioning of your family, which is how Erickson felt. Um, and then Connor goes on to say, either you put him in an institution or try to find a nice family to place him with in a dog patch community. Um, that's a phrase I had to look up because I didn't, I was not familiar with dog patch community. It turns out it is a, uh, a low income rural community. It was an old phrase. I was guessing that from the context. Yeah. Good. So, uh, so, so he says, he says, put the child in a dog patch community where, uh, his situation won't make much difference to the family, right? As opposed to yours, which will diminish the prestige of your family. I mean, this is not that long ago. I know it sounds long ago, 1940s, 1950s. Oh, it's not long ago at all. 70 years ago, but it is, it is not, not that long. Just look at how much has changed since then. I mean, some, we, we, you know, obviously stigma is this huge problem and we talk about it and there a lot, and there are lots and lots of, of negative things going on and people are treated badly and are in bad institutions. But if we compare where we are now to where we've been, I think we can see that there are many ways in which we're on a really positive course. I mean, I teach a big intro class, 292 students and a student gets up in front of class and says, on the first day of class to 300 people, I have Tourette's disorder. I might say something that is going to startle you or you might even find offensive. Wow, I mean, that's incredible. The student who says to me ADHD uh, diagnosis was the best day of her freshman year because finally for the first time somebody saw she wasn't lazy or stupid. The autistic student who says to me, I make poor eye contact, but I'm actually paying attention, just wanted you to know. This is a huge change where we're now open, talking about mental illnesses and developmental disabilities, advocating for ourselves, and people are defining themselves on their own terms with their own values, rather than just giving in to these old antiquated ideas that disabilities are something that should be um, invisible or to be ashamed of. I'm really, I mean, I'm not a Pollyanna, but I'm optimistic. No, I mean, that's actually how I wanna end things is on that kind of note, because I agree with you. Um, I'm going to read one more thing really quick here because, again, this just stuck in my mind. This, you know, Eric Erickson and the Sun. I, I was 
Googling this last night and I don't often cite Wikipedia on our show, but that's what I landed. You know, there's a column on the right, just basic background information about a person, where they're born, credentials, and it lists three children, not Neil. Then you read really? uh, further down, and in the paragraph, they mentioned at the very end of his personal biography, he also had a son, Neil, who died early. There's nothing. But it doesn't um, even it's it's just wow. nuts, you know? And, and then you, you ended the, the discussion here. You said, quote, Neil was 21 when he died. There are no photographs of him, unquote. I mean... I mean, you know how many thousands of pictures I have of my girls my, on, on the iCloud? I mean, we take them all the time. Now, they didn't have that then, but they never even have a picture of this person as if he never existed, mm -hmm. all because of stigma. I just want to drive that point home because it's certainly good. No, thank you for doing so. Um, but back to optimism here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I share that. I think it's very interesting that we just, we just came off of a whole episode about PTSD. So... Here we have uh, two doctors who are both former Navy SEALs. Um, Sean Mulvaney is doing a treatment called SGB, steroid ganglion block. And I mean, you can Google it online. It, you know, they, he treated Dakota Meyer, the Medal of Honor recipient on 60 Minutes. And they both talked about it. And Robert Adams, who was interviewing him on our show, admitted at the end he's had PTSD. And, you know, if you don't think two ex-Navy SEAL doctors are tough guys, you're not going to find any tougher yeah. than that and a Medal of Honor recipient who has no problem going on national television and saying, yeah, I got this, you know, I want to- I And want that's, to that's, that's just how strong they are because that is a sign of a resiliency and strength when you seek care for exactly. something. I mean, we no longer can have any ex expectation that somebody's not going to be traumatized by experiencing trauma. I mean, there's just, that is, that is at the risk of undercutting the title of my book, Normal. So is there such a thing as normal? <laughs> normal is an illusion. I mean, normal is, a, is, is something out there that we, um, we, we create to compare ourselves and others to. Um, it is something that we, we create. Um, you know, we can see this clearly mid-century when normal changes from being a statistical average, a word that's really used only in mathematics, or in um, curricula to teach um, certain kinds of norms to, um, for teacher training to something that we aspire to be in what David Reisman called the age of conformity. Um, you know, I have a daughter with autism. Uh, she's 29. I wrote another book about her called Unstrange Minds. And I really learned about the problem of normal through her because if I compared her always to this imagined idea of what normal development is, I would always be disappointed. I might be disappointed even for my child that doesn't have autism to compare her to some imagined normal. But when I compare Isabel to Isabel, when I compare her to how she was when she was younger and how far she's come, I am so immensely gratified at those changes. And so what do we use as our yardstick, right? And if I were to say, you know, she, she, she works in an animal lab uh, right now, a research lab where they do research on rodents and rabbits, and she takes care of those animals and she does a lot of cleaning. Um, did I, you know, it, would I have imagined that the normal person in my social orbit 
my child would be somebody who was doing a lot of cleaning for her job and not making very much money? No. But for her, this is an incredibly meaningful life. When we compare people to themselves, we re-evaluate and we find new gauges of how to figure out what is valued and what is a contribution. We, can t- we teach that stuff, right? We can change what we teach. Well, in it's a like, sense, in your family, uh, normal was being a psychiatrist. <laughs> that's and true. You, you're <laughs> abnormal, but if you look at your career and the books that you've written, it's it's spectacular. So you have set you have defined your normal by by you, Richard Grinker, and and I think that you're a representative of that as well. Well, thank you. I mean, do we have a, a couple more minutes? I was just going to ask you a question. Are you okay if we extend just a little bit? Um, yeah, sure. Um, I was going to follow up on that by saying that, you know, anthropology is one of the best ways to challenge the idea of the normal, yeah. because we go and we look at other cultures and we see what they do, and they don't always do what we do. And that we can come back to our own culture, see it in a new light and say, hey, you know, the way that we do things isn't the only way. It's culture much more than nature that um, defines how we make the world. Yeah, yeah, well, you spent a lot of time in, in Korea, South Korea. Um, I don't, have you traveled to North Korea at all in your travels? Oh, no, I've tried many times to go yeah. to North Korea, but never. Well, it, it's interesting. South Korea, it's um, it's a bit of a pressure cooker, right? I mean, growing up there is, is certainly different than here. And everything, I didn't even know, There's there, matchmakers are still very popular, helping sure. you find, quote, the right spouse. And there's going to be already is more pressure to look at concrete, physical, you know, a functional MRI image, um, AI coming through your social media posts, looking for patterns, something concrete to say, this is what you have. This is who you are. And I know you voice a lot of skepticism about this, but there's a lot of people working on this and some for good reasons, some just to sell you more crap on Facebook. But um, what, what do you think is the future here, you know, at least maybe in the next 20 or 30 years as we probably get better at predictively analyzing people, but we're going to have a lot of gaps in that understanding too. Can you give us your thoughts on that? Well, I don't think we're ever going to be able to completely predict um, whether somebody's going to have a mental illness. I mean, it's not like, you know, we can say somebody has hypertension and so they're clearly at risk of heart disease or a stroke or whatever. We can treat that. Um, you know, how many picky eaters are there in the world that are, you know, they go on to have an eating disorder. We can't just treat every picky eater, right? So that's tough to do. But the more important problem I see is that the focus on the brain, the almost singular focus on research on the brain these days is to the exclusion of the real experience that we have. I mean, we know that people um, focus, say, in depression on the hippocampus, certain part of the brain. But Poverty and social stress is just as important in depression. We know that there is different cortical thickness and different neural circuitry, subtle but significant differences in people with schizophrenia or people with ADHD, but that doesn't translate into less discrimination of people with schizophrenia or address their um, cut sort of downward spiral as the result of the disease. Knowing that there are differences in brain circuitry in someone with ADHD doesn't translate into better special education 
or better curricular reform. So I think the problem is we're focusing so much on the brain and not the societies in which our brains exist. Um, I think we need to do both. It's possible that someday psychiatry will, you know, become so objective and fact-based and brain-based that they will be able to cure things and that we will see stigma reduce because mental illnesses will be seen not as permanent brands and, and chronic conditions, but as treatable conditions in the way that we've destigmatized some physical illnesses that used to be stigmatized greatly. But first of all, we're nowhere near that. Secondly, the brain is different from other organs. The brain is different from a virus or a bacterium. It's much more complex. In fact, experience itself changes the structure of the brain. Trauma changes the structure of the brain. I just think there's way too much focus on, on the brain. And we know from epigenetic work that really profound social stressors can not only have an impact on the, your experience um, in, of yourself, but that it can change epigenetically the way in which genes are regulated in subsequent generations. So if, I mean, it's, it's like we all learned Lamarck was wrong, right? You can't pass on conditions that you acquired during your life. But Lamarck wasn't entirely wrong now that we know epigenetics because we can see that gene regulation changes in your offspring. In that case, it doesn't make sense to even divide conditions into conditions of the brain or conditions of society because the experience is this complex interaction between both. But clearly we are doing it in some places. I mean, you mentioned Iceland. I mean, there are almost no, no, no babies born with Down syndrome right now. And it's, it's right. A, Down syndrome is not a mental illness though. Yeah, that's true. It's, 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 that's a clear you know, genetic mental illness, illnesses but, are by definition um, behavioral um, disorders without a known cause. True. Once you know a cause, you take it out of the DSM and you put it in some other realm of, you know, whatever it is, neurology or pediatrics or something else. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, the reason I, I bring I, it up as an example, it's, um, I mean, one, it makes me uncomfortable for sure. I think yeah. it makes a lot of people very uncomfortable, but it's a stepping stone. You know, it, it is a form of social engineering, right? Um, right. I see that. what you mean. Yeah. So as technology doesn't have to get perfect, but as we have, um, I mean, right now, I mean, you know, you can get a, um, you know, a genetic breakdown, you know, before your child's born. And these are not perfect. These are all probabilities, like almost everything is in life. But if it's compelling enough to a parent, they may make a different decision. And as we move ahead in the head, you know, are we still trying to <laughs> drive towards some sort of idea of normal instead of embracing, you know, as you mentioned, neurodiversity? I mean, how do, how do we grapple with these things? It's... I really think you have two minutes. You had to do it in two minutes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the neurodiversity movement is really important because uh, it is a tide that has been helping raise all boats. Uh, I mean, I think the same thing of civil rights and disability rights and transgender rights and so on. That we are um, increasingly understanding that um, that diversity is what makes us interesting, and some of these movements to try and predict what the child is going to be like are really gauged at enforcing again, you know, an illusion of normality. And I will just go back to 1961. 
decades before neurodiversity, when my grandfather and my father did a study of so-called normal people, they separated out all the ones who, who qualified for mental illnesses in a particular college in, in Illinois. And then they only looked at the quote unquote normal ones who didn't meet criteria for any mental illness. And they were so boring. <laughs> and he said, I mean, he actually asked this question in this paper in the archives of general psychiatry, the leading journal, he said, is this lack of creativity, lack of diversity, lack of insight, lack of ambition, is this the cost of normality? Mm. And he had to repeat it to make sure the reader knew that wasn't a joke. Maybe that's what it is. I mean, maybe as, as these things continue, we're still diverse and not everyone's going to want the same things for their children. Maybe there's hope in that, but um, I don't know. We'll yeah, see. Well, you know, think of what's happening in terms of LGBTQ right. rights and, and, and so on. Um, you know, I... Uh, if decades ago somebody had told you, well, your child, we've had this genetic test and your child will be gay, the person might make a particular decision. Um, I think those decisions might be different today. I, I certainly hope so. I, I certainly hope so too. I mean, I love the, I love the fact that I have a student, you know, who wears a t-shirt that says, I hate normal people. Yeah. <laughs> I like it too. I mean, um, maybe give us, give us a couple examples. I mean, you talked about your daughter, you talked about the Israeli armed forces. You talked about some other examples of high tech companies that um, are finding, you know, real opportunities for people, whereas traditionally they, they may not have been available. I mean, give us oh, yeah, some sure. of the landscape here. Yeah. Well, I talked to managers and um, people who are, um, who are hiring people with autism, um, JP Morgan Chase, the Israeli defense force, um, the cybersecurity company CXS, and they all insist that they're hiring people with autism not because they um, are compassionate or, you know, are, are pitying people and want to give them jobs. They say that they're hiring people with autism because they need different ways of looking at data, that they need people with different perspectives and different skills. Um, I think that we don't want to confuse though good outcomes in autism with just being in the high tech world or being a computer coder or something like that. Because we also find that there are people with autism who are great at other things. Like my daughter's really good at taking care of animals and doing health checks on the rodents and keeping their cages clean and cleaning the floors and cleaning the windows. And, as, and what we need to do is to make sure that people, whatever their line of work is, that we're not teaching them that their line of work is somehow bad or to devalue it. You know, I remember this moment where my daughter was uh, interning to try to get a job at a local pharmacy. And we were going over with her manager what her tasks were. And my daughter said, so when I get into the pharmacy at 9 a.m., I'm a cleaning lady. That's just how she said it, because she knows that when she comes in at nine, the first thing she has to do is clean. And the manager shot back at her, almost you know, admonishing her. You are not a cleaning lady. How can you say that? You are a retail associate. And it was in that moment that you can see the teaching of those values. Like it's a perfect um, example of how somebody growing up learns that there's some jobs that are valued more than others. And that's a problem. 
because not everybody can do every job. And we need to value people for what they love to do, whether it means being a volunteer and not making money, whether it means being an artist and probably not making money, right. whether it means that you are a stay-at-home parent. I mean, by the tenets of capitalism, the stay-at-home parent is disabled, right? Because they're not earning any wages. You know, you, you mentioned um, retail associate, right? Using a different term. Yeah. In terms of important, vocabulary is important. Oh, yeah. You talked about that a lot. Um, and a lot of this is evolving, you know, as our understanding this, this continues. But Keith and I were talking about the DSM beforehand. It was, we weren't sure how you actually feel about the DSM as it currently is. It's, um, this is something that was started just subsequent to World War II, you know, greenlighted by Harry Truman at the time. Um, give us a, you know, a quick idea of what this is and how diagnosis codes, they're used for billing today mostly, but they have, have had other purposes, good and bad, uh, since this was started. Well, the DSM, as it's been used since 1980, has been really important. Um, it's vital because um, there has to be some standardization of how you think about different conditions. Um, if I am doing research on a particular condition in Norway, and you are doing research on a particular condition in the United States, and we're far away from each other, we should know that we're testing a medicine or we're, we're testing a diagnostic protocol or something on a similar population. So it helps us kind of standardize things so that we know we're all working on the same page. You could do that through the DSM. You could also do it by saying, you know, we're both studying this gene or we're both studying this neural pathway, but there has to be some kind of way in which research results can be compared. And the DSM is incredibly useful for that purpose. But I like to follow the philosophy of Judy Rappaport, who was the chair of child psychiatry for decades at the National Institute for Mental Health, who told me, I am a rigorous scientist and I will include in my studies only people who conform to the DSM criteria for X or Y. But when it comes to my clinical practice, I'll call a kid a zebra if it gets that kid into the classroom setting that is the best one for that kid, right? And so we need to think about the difference between what works in society and what works in research. Take the chapter in my book on Nepal. Here's a guy, Raj, um, uh, Dr. Koirala, right? The psychiatrist in Nepal. He, he's well-educated and knows about the neurological basis of mental illness. He doesn't reject the neurobiological basis of mental illness, but he never talks about the brain with people when he treats them because he knows that it's so stigmatizing and so frightening to talk about the brain that he's decided to talk about it in terms of the heart. He acts in one way in the clinical setting and acts in another way in a research setting. So we have to understand the DSM you know, for what it is. There are also big problems with the DSM. I bit, did a piece for the New York Times on gender dysphoria, which I strongly suggest should be removed from the DSM. Um, somebody with, um, uh, who wants to become transgender is not mentally ill by virtue of wanting to be transgender. However, the person with who is transgender 
isn't immune from depression or anxiety or you know anything else, and they should be treated for that. But just wanting to be you know plural or to be bisexual or to be transgender is not a, a, is not in itself a mental illness. And so um, the DSM is a ideally a living, changing, moving document, and it's a cultural document that reflects how we feel about at the things at the time. And so in the 1960s and early 1970s, homosexuality was a mental illness. That just doesn't feel right anymore. And so it's been removed, but not because anybody made some scientific discovery where they said, ah, we've discovered that it is or isn't a mental illness. The uh, DSM is guided less by scientific discovery than it is by what frameworks seem to work in society at a particular historical moment. And, and then of course you want to revise it so you can make money because the book sells <laughs> right. like hotcakes. <laughs> right. And it, it is interesting. You go to a bookstore, if anyone still goes to a bookstore and you see DSM on the shelves. And so people are out who aren't doctors are buying it. I think one of the problems is it is really useful in a framework where you are doing clinical work, but probably not useful in a framework where you're um, picking it up and looking, oh, the, I have this, or oh, my husband does this or does that or whatever. Um, yeah, apparently I, the name of our show is actually a condition, which I, yeah, I didn't know about. Until I didn't know. <laughs> so, um, but you do bring, make the important point that now they're sort of lumping things as spectrum, not lumping, but they're actually including things more as spectra instead of as individual disorders. And I think that's a, also important progress. Can you yeah. comment on that? I do. I think that the um, idea of the spectrum is really useful uh, because in the old days, not so far away, I shouldn't even call it the old days, pre-2012-13, you know, most people talked about mental illnesses as categorical. You either have it or you don't have it, right? And the fact is that most people don't fit all the checklists and, you know, perfectly. And we also change over time. And so a spectrum allows us to see both the dimensions and heterogeneity of a particular uh, experience of suffering and symptoms, um, but also to see it dynamically over time. And more importantly to me, I think the spectrum is something that helps us expand the world of mental suffering to a larger and larger population to say, hey, we're all somewhere on some spectrum. I know that there are people who find this problematic. For example, the autism spectrum is so huge that it includes people who might be Silicon Valley engineers and somebody who might need 24 seven lifelong institutional care. And the way in which autism is depicted in the media is often as that Silicon engineer or doctor or whatever it might be. And the people whose kids need more involved care think, well, that's not my child. But I see the spectrum as something that's incredibly useful. When I have a student who says that they're kind of a neat freak and they say they're a little OCD, they, they don't mean that they meet the full criteria, but maybe they mean, hey, I understand what OCD is. I, I got a little of it myself. Um, when the person says they have PTSD from an econ class or econ final, they don't really mean PTSD in the same way that the Navy SEAL who's experienced horrible trauma is experiencing PTSD. But by using these terms colloquially, I think we're disarming them. 
I think we're taking away the power of these words to hurt. And I think we're inviting the human population to say that we all share a common um, uh, existence on a variety of different spectra. And I see this as a very positive move. Yeah, I do too. Um, like I said earlier, I, I really enjoyed your book and maybe it's because I, I don't spend enough time thinking about these things, but um, there's a lot of things. We didn't even get into the history of uh, warfare and how that relates to um, psychiatry. Yeah, but, well, I have to say, if somebody had um, come to me and said, hey, I want to write a, can you give me advice? I want to write a book that's going to weave my four generations of my family in with the entire history of mental illness and stigma uh, over several centuries and on multiple continents. I'd say, get lost. It's not, it's not going to happen. Um, I hope I can't comment on its coherence because I'm the author, but uh, you're right, there was a whole lot. Um, in this book, and I really hope that readers find uh, that you know every reader will find something that they engage in more than something else. But it's not academic; it's very much written for a general audience, and hope that people like it. Real quick, I mean, through the course of your research, was there anything that changed your views on anything? Anything that uh, just surprised you, even about your family background? Oh, I think the most surprising thing was what happened in Korea. Really? Because. When I first started working there in the mid 2000s, um, nobody would talk to me about autism. It was just so, so stigmatized. And even the big health experts would say, oh, we really don't have autism here in Korea. And um, after just a decade, um, it had just transformed. I mean, that. there were screenings for autism and in schools and there were doctors specializing it and in it and, and new special education classes being formed and then media uh, the um, celebrities were coming out and talking about having kids with autism, unheard of. Um, the television show, The Good Doctor, um, are you familiar with that? It's on I've heard of it. Yeah. Yes. Um, that was a Korean show. Oh. And then Daniel Day Kim bought it and sold it to ABC and to, sold it to Hollywood. Um, there's a, a, a new remarkable film out, very melodramatic, you know, if you have to like melodramas, called It's Okay Not To Be Okay, that is streaming on Netflix, which is a Korean drama in which the person who's bipolar that comes in for treatment is seen to be strong. The person who comes in for um, substance abuse problem is seen to be strong. The, the, the movie, the, the series revolves around uh, two, uh, one autistic man and his younger brother who helps take care of him. And we see in their relationship that it's not just a relationship in which the older, the younger brother takes care of the older one, but they take care of each other. And it's remarkable. Ten years, this one society could change so fast. Yeah, and that amazing. just really tells you what we're capable of. I mean, that is the most surprising thing I've experienced uh, in, in doing any of this research is that kind of speed. You know, it's it's extraordinary. All right, so we've kept you twenty minutes past the time, so I appreciate that. Number one, thanks. Um, we were going to end here by you reading a passage towards the end of your book. Um, so we're still good at that. I, I think we should. Keith, did, was there any other questions? Anything else? No, we covered. I mean, yes, we didn't touch on a lot of things, but we just don't have time. I hope you'll agree to come on sometime and talk again. I would love to. Um, are you sure you have time for me to read a, a bit? We, we do. Before you do that, though, um, so I don't forget, um, just remind us again the title of the book, where people can find it, and for, sure. find out more about you and your research. So the book is called Nobody's Normal, How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness. It's published by W.W. Norton. It came out the very end of January. And um, it is available everywhere. Um, 
It is also an audiobook and a Kindle book as well. You can go on Amazon or you know any place to, to purchase it. And if you do read it and you do like it, definitely let Amazon know. Um, I would, I'll read a passage for you uh, from the conclusion, which is about The Scarlet Letter, a book most of us have read in high school, the 1850 novel about um, the Puritans. Um, not something you would expect to read about in a book on mental illness. There is a remarkable passage at the end of Nathaniel Hawthorne's 1850, The Scarlet Letter, when after a long absence, Hester Prynne returns to the scene of her crime. As her punishment for adultery, she had worn an embroidered red letter A on her breast. But after all those years, not even the harshest judge would force her to continue wearing it. She decides of her own free will to keep it fastened to her blouse because, the narrator tells us, the scarlet letter ceased to be a stigma which attracted the world's scorn and bitterness and became a type of something to be sorrowed over and looked upon with awe yet with reverence too. The village now saw her as a source of comfort and strength, not as a person stained with sin. When people suffered the dreary burden of a heart, especially in matters of love or misplaced passion, they visited her cottage for counsel. They knew Hester would understand their pain. The goal of the punishment was to marginalize Hester from society, but by claiming adultery for herself, as if with the pride of a 21st century LGBTQ advocate who has reclaimed the word queer from the bigots, she makes the letter a mark of dignity and experience rather than of shame. Both Hester's original stigma and its transformation to a sign of self-worth derived from her ongoing struggle between her individual character and her society's expectations, a struggle Hester embraced by returning to her community. The question for us is whether we can win our own struggle and take ownership of the words and practices that exclude and discriminate. The many victories described in this book suggest that we can. And I will um, end there. I could go on reading, but I would be repeating what I had previously said about disarming words by owning them and saying, you know, I'm a little OCD, I've, I'm on the spectrum and, and so on. Yeah, well, um, we could keep going with a lot more questions. I, 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 I really think it's important because this is an example of, and, and Hawthorne uses the word stigma, right? It's an example of how somebody can say, I'm not going to have this characteristic or this mark or this diagnosis define me. I'm going to define it in a way that um, I find useful. And she says, this is about my strength. And the result is that other people see it then as strength too. Excellent. Yeah, not to mention the problems with secrecy and everything else that goes into that too. Of course. There's two people involved in that, not just her, but, but anyway. Um, Richard, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. And yeah, thanks. This has been fun. I appreciate it. Thanks for your work. And, and thanks for bringing this book into the world. This is, uh, I really enjoyed it. Oh, and great. Thank you so much. I think for everybody out there, this is one definitely worth picking up. And everybody, that is Roy Richard Grinker. And whenever, wherever you're listening, take care. We'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com.